All right, welcome back to our study. I think we're somewhere eight, nine weeks into this study, and we have been going through the beginning of the book of Exodus and looking how God uses Moses to confront Pharaoh, and we learned from the ancient Egypt historian Manetho that he confronts the Pharaoh Dedemosi of the 13th dynasty in Egypt, and how God uses Moses to confront this person, and in the words of the Egyptian historian Manetho, God smote Egypt. It's at this time that God smote Egypt through these uh, plagues. We're, we're looking at this moment of time where, where God reveals his, in, his incredible miracles through these plagues and the Red Sea and all that sort of stuff, where he's, he's revealing his power and he's making a great name for himself. I don't know if you've really thought about this before, but up until this moment, again, we're reminded that nobody knows the name Yahweh. Moses has just re heard that from God in chapter 3 of, of Exodus in the burning bush. There, there has been the worship of this God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the, the nations of the world aren't tracking this God. You, you don't have Egypt or the other mighty empires. They have their own gods, their own uh, deities that they're worshiping. Hopefully, um, some of the descendants of Abraham and the nations that come from maybe some of his other kids are still connected to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. But, but at this moment in time, mostly God's being worshipped by this insignificant in the world's eyes, very significant in God's eyes, people who are slaves in Egypt. Uh, this, this, name is not, this God has not made a great name for himself, but this is his moment. This is his moment where he is letting the world know, I am, right? That, this is where he's revealing himself to the nations, and that's changing now with the plagues, the Red Sea crossing, and the rescuing of these Hebrews out of slavery. Just as a reminder where we've been the last couple weeks, last week we started talking about the plagues, and we hit the first three plagues. I have a chart up here which is done by um, Mark Berry in 1997. No, not, no, no, yeah, 2007, same thing. Um, so uh, it, just kind of a reminder of, of the, the list of the plagues. We, we talked about how God changed the water in the Nile, along with other water in Egypt, into blood. That's the first plague. We read through that. We read through the frog, the invasion of the frogs. We talked about the um, gnats. No, I'm just kidding. The gnats and, and how, um, how that, that uh, spread throughout the nation. Now, we kind of ended there. And today I'd like to kind of generally cover plagues 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. But I don't have enough time to read all that tonight. So... Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read just Plague 4 and know that they, the other plagues generally follow the same sort of flow. But I encourage you, it's an amazing story and there's, there's different things in each plague that, that, are, that are worth picking up. Not the plague, but, but other facts in the, in the, the thing. And uh, well worth reading through these chapters. But I'm just going to hit the end of chapter 8 with the... Uh, fourth plague flies at the moment. And, and this is how it reads, and you can kind of tuck this away. Um, uh, Yahweh, uh, the Lord, uh, his name in the text is Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh when you see him going out to the water. Tell him, this is what Yahweh says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, uh, your people, and your houses. I'm going to send them against your houses. Uh, the Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But, 
But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the uh, Yahweh, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. Now, two powerful things here. Tomorrow, that's a powerful word, and we want to just overlook it. Remember, tomorrow means it hasn't happened yet. It's a prophetic word. This is going to happen tomorrow. Moses is telling what's going to happen. If it doesn't happen tomorrow, the word doesn't hold true. Very often through these plagues, we've seen this word tomorrow, and and it seems like no big deal. But when God says he's going to do something, and it hasn't happened yet, and you can't see any evidence of it right in front of you, you know, we're tempted to be like, well, we'll see. But he says tomorrow, and tomorrow it's going to happen. I just gave it away. It's going to happen tomorrow, and and flies are going to invade. But it's it's amazing. It's It's a powerful word, like that God is prophetic, that he's able to speak about the future precisely. The other thing that I told you was coming is now we have clearly the Pharaoh not in the north. He's definitely now in the south at Luxor, at Thebes, and, and I've shown you that in the previous in our study, where, where you're seeing now a, a distinction between what's going to happen in the north, where in Goshen, where the, the Hebrews mostly live, and in the south, where the Egyptians mostly live. And so we, we now have a, a distinction there. Um, again, just reminded that, that this, this, this distinction is show, highlighting not only is God prophetic and be able to speak about tomorrow, but he's also very precise. I am able to judge these people and not these other people. I'm, I'm going to be able to pr- protect my own people and bring incredible judgment against, against you. So anyways, there's, there's a couple... Just fun facts there from that paragraph. But let's keep reading. And it says, and Yahweh did this. You know, it's going to happen tomorrow. And Yahweh did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to God within the country. But Moses said, it would not be right to do that. Because what we will sacrifice to Yahweh our God is detestable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what the Egyptians detest in front of them, won't they stone us? We must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he instructs us. Pharaoh responded, I will let you go and sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, but don't go very far. Make an appeal for me. As soon as I leave you, Moses said, I will appeal to Yahweh, and tomorrow, prophetic word, the swarms of flies will depart from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people, but Pharaoh must not act deceptively again by refusing to let the the people go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Then Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to Yahweh. Yahweh did as Moses had said. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people, not one was left. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. All right, that's, that's how the, the swarm of flies, the fourth plague goes. And back to the chart quickly. Uh, the, the other plagues follow a very similar vibe and flow. You have then the plague of the libs, livestock where, where um, many, most, I can't say all because more of them die <laughs> in, the, in the upcoming plagues, but, but the vast majority of livestock are killed. Then there's boils, boils on animals, boils on people, boils are uh, no fun. Festering boils, not just boils, festering. 
festering boils, uh, breaking out, uh, awful plague, and then hail, right? Hail falls from the sky and, and just strikes down everything in the fields and animals. Now, the, the, seventh, the seventh plague has got some interesting fun facts. If you only read one, read the seventh one about hail. Um, one of the things that you see in there is, is the Pharaoh's officials, some of them are starting to catch a clue. It's only taken them six other awful plagues to realize that Yahweh is quite a big deal. And they, the officials that hear about the hail coming and they believe in Yahweh, they, they, or they respect him, fear him enough, they, they get their slaves and their goats, uh, whatever they have, animals, uh, under shelter, and their animals are spared, whereas the rest of those who didn't fear the word of Yahweh, then their animals are destroyed. You see some distinctions there in the seventh one that are unique. The eighth plague is locusts, locusts devouring everything that's left, completely devastating the land. And then the ninth one, darkness. And I, I don't know if you've ever read the darkness one and, and kind of thought about, it, it describes just such a heavy darkness in just one part of the land. And I'm, try, I'm always like, how did this happen? And, and what was going on there? But, but the, uh, it's, it's defined as this thick darkness. And then in a couple weeks, we'll talk about the plague uh, or the, um, the death of the firstborn son and cattle and animals. Uh, that'll, that'll be coming up in, in a few weeks. What we have here in Exodus, though, is a, an account from Moses himself, this eyewitness account, where he's writing the story of, of what happened, these, these plagues in Egypt, from the Hebrew perspective. Did you also know, most people don't know this, that we also have uh, an eyewitness account from the from the uh, Egyptian perspective, uh, from the Egyptian perspective, an, an Egyptian sage in the 13th dynasty writes down from their perspective what is happening and records this. I've told you about this guy and then I was going to talk about him in a few weeks. His name is Ipure. I-P-U-W-E-R. Ipure. And Ipure's work, it's, it's, here's a picture of it. It's, uh, you can find it in the Netherlands at the um, Leiden Museum. There, uh, this, this guy's writing the story from, again, the, an eyewitness account. He's writing in the first person. And, and his role as an, an, a sage is he's, he's one of those guys who eventually gets to the point where he's confronting Pharaoh, saying, look, this place is devastated. You've got to stop. You've got to let these people go. And, uh, and he's writing the, the depiction of this. Now, you're like, how can this be real? And I've never heard of this. Well, I'll talk about why you've not heard of this in a moment. But we know it was written in the 13th dynasty. Uh, this guy named John Van Setters, uh, in 1966, he did this really extensive research on this and an evaluation of this document. And because of certain names and terms used in this document, it could only be written in a certain tiny window of time here at, at the end of the 13th dynasty. Actually, if you're like, is there a conspiracy theory here? Uh, and, and, you know, that this is trying to set it in the 13th dynasty. When this was done in 1966, we were still using the old chronology, remember? And so what happened was, according to the old chronology, that puts the date of this manuscript 350 years away from the Exodus. And so it was never connected. It was never connected to that. But now with the new chronology, all of a sudden this document shifts in to the right timeline. And, and I'll say that again in just a moment. But... Let's, I want to show you some of the connections between these two eyewitnesses, between Moses and a pure, one from the Hebrew perspective and one from a pure who doesn't know Yahweh. He's just watching this take place and he's, he seems to be in Pharaoh's court while this is happening. Um, thinking of the first plague, uh, the plague, the turning of the Nile into blood. Moses writes this, he says, 
Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials. He raised the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad, the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. This is what Epure writes. The river is blood. As you drink of it, you lose your humanity and thirst for water. Uh, please note, uh, he says blood, not mud. And we talked about that naturalistic theory previously. Uh, that's what he's right. Now, it con connected later uh, to the destruction of the crops and, all, and the food and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Moses writes things like this. He says, the flax and the barley were ruined. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. The locusts covered the surface of the ground until the land was devastated. And they devoured what was growing in the fields and all the fruit of the trees. A pure writes this. Gone is the grain of abundance. Food supplies are running short. The nobles hunger and suffer. Upper Egypt has become a wasteland. This is hugely biblically significant. Upper Egypt is south. Uh, lower Egypt is where the Hebrews live. He doesn't say Egypt is decimated. It shows a distinction from what's going on where the, where the Egyptians are living versus where the Hebrews are living. It says Upper Egypt has become a wasteland. Grain is lacking on every side. The storehouse is bare. Women say, oh, that we had something to eat. Apparently, it's just the women. They just, they're the ones that want something to eat. Okay. Uh, the, okay, and, th and then there's this, the ruination of, of, of the nation, right? And Moses writes about the, the ruination and, this, talk, and this, this Pharaoh moment. And he writes about people, probably a pure, being one of these guys. Uh, Pharaoh's officials asked him, again, thinking of a pure. This is in the words of Moses. Pharaoh's officials asked him, how long must this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that we may worship the Lord their God, or so that they may worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize yet that Egypt is devastated? A pure writes, what can we do about it? All is in ruin. Connected to the darkness, uh, the darkness that covers the land, Moses writes, so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. A pure writes, those who had shelter are now in the dark of the storm. The whole of the delta cannot be seen. Connected to the death uh, of the firstborn in that moment, Moses writes in Exodus 12, Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who was sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up. He, along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was loud, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. A pure writes, Behold, plague sweeps the land. Blood is everywhere with no shortage of the dead. Woe is me for the grief of the time. He who buries his brother in the ground is everywhere, wailing is throughout the land mingled with lamentation. Moses, he, he writes later in the book of Numbers, they traveled from Ramses in the first month and the 15th day of the month, and on the day after Passover, the Israelites went out defiantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Meanwhile, the Egyptians were burying every firstborn male the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had executed judgment against their gods. 
You see this over and over again. One of the random details in the Exodus story is, is how Moses instructs people to get the gold and the silver, right? To ask them for the gold and the silver. Um, Pura writes about that as well. Moses says, the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. Epure, Epure writes, the slave takes what he finds. What belongs to the palace has been stripped. Gold, lapis and lazuli and silver and turquoise are strung on the necks of female slaves. Again, connecting it right to the slaves are taking this stuff. See how the poor of the land have become rich whilst the man of prosperity is a pauper. Again, if you're asking yourself, how have I ever not heard about this, or, or why is this not, why does not everybody know about this? It's the chronology issue. Again, we've talked about this. The chronology issue. When, when you, when you, the old chronology had that extra gap of about 300 years. They kind of made a guess on how long a certain period of time was lasted. And, and yet now they're working through, at adjusting that back to getting it in the right in the right time frame, and they're adjusting it so that it lines up with all the other nations and uh, their timelines. There was just an extra gap in Egypt, and so they're getting that all lined up, and they're getting it all lined up with the astronomical events, like, hey, this, I don't know, triple suplex moon thing, uh, I don't know, uh, took place on this date, and kind of getting it all lined up correctly, and it turns out that there, there needs to be a, a quite a shortening of this one gap in time, so you have the 13th dynasty, which used to be 350 years too early for the Exodus, now it's put right on the right moment, and so you have the Bible saying that the Exodus takes place around, yeah, 50. 1450 BC or so, and you have Manetho who says Deuteronomy of the 13th dynasty um, is the is the Pharaoh when God smote Egypt, and that's taking place right there at the 1450 BC mark. And then you've got Epuer who we know is writing in the 13th dynasty, writing about the same event, and and they're now all coming together. There's not a conspiracy that has gone on to uh, other than we were just wrong with the, the chronology, and now that the chronologies are all syncing up, all of a sudden, oh. Wow, we've been looking at this all along, and now it's all, it's all lining up. It's, it's pretty amazing. The, it's pretty amazing just how it, how it lines up. And, and we get to see, wow, when the enemies and when the victors and the losers of a historical event say the same thing happened historically, you know it's true. When the victors, in this case the slaves, they get their freedom, the Hebrews, when they say that God smote the Egyptians and this is what happened, and when the losers who got smoten, Smitten, uh, something. Uh, then, then they, then they are, then, the, and they say the same thing happened. You know, historically, this is a an, a, an accurate event. Now, God did smite them. Uh, the question is why. And what I want to know, not just why, uh, we kind of know why. I mean, it's said before, because God keeps his, remembers his covenant that he made with Abraham. And because God sees and he hears, they're groaning and he's paying attention and all that kind of stuff. But why, why did God not just smite them? Why didn't he, why, why did he smite them and then 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 smite them? I've lost count. Ten times. Why did it, why does he do this ten times? A, a ten times, a, as opposed to just, just one time. Well, God has a reason. And he said it during the seventh plague. And so I'm just going to read these, these couple verses uh, and catch God's why, for why, why, all this, um, why all these plagues. In Exodus 9, uh, verse 14, 
It says, um, God says, for this reason, no, wait, hold on, where am I at? For, for this time, I'm about to send my, okay, sorry, it wants my face ID. <laughs> that, was, that was tricky. Uh, multitasking is not my thing. For this time, uh, I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have left you, uh, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on, on the whole earth. Again, it, it's, it's good. I love knowing that God could have dealt with it all at once. You remember the story. You remember, we've talked about this, how it got worse before, before it's gotten better. How, how Moses confronts Pharaoh. And, and it's not like people were just rescued right away. Instead, they, 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 get, they get oppressed more. And it, we've talked about the timeline, how it's at least four to five months. The Jewish people say it was a year-long process of all the uh, ten plagues. And, and how, you know, God could have, he said, he could have rescued them on plague one, on day one. He could have set them free, obliterated them. But instead, he is going ten plagues of this. He's going through this over and over and over again. And maybe you have experiences like this in your life where you're like, God, I, I, I thought you were going to help me. I thought you were going to rescue me. And we've talked about this before, but, like, but now my life has gotten worse. Or this is sure taking a long time. Don't you think you could do this faster? Why are you not, why are you not helping me sooner? In fact, I know some of you have felt that way with, with prayers. Uh, I, I'm saying some. I know it's all of us, but I'm just going to say some of us. Uh, that, that, you know, that, that God, you know, God, why aren't you acting sooner in answer to my prayers? If you're online, you can click on that box. If that's you, you're like, I wonder why God hasn't helped me sooner. Why are you not helping me sooner in, in this life? And, and why have things been so disappointing? Why have things been so frustrating? Why have things been so not ideal, so painful, so scary? I was hoping that things would go better. I was trusting you that things would work out better, but instead things are not better. And you haven't yet done what I thought you were going to do. And we want to say, why, God? Why? I know you could, so why haven't you? When it comes to you and, and your situation... I don't, I don't know why God hasn't answered your prayer or why he hasn't rescued you already or why he hasn't intervened in your life. But I know he has a good reason why. I do know he has a good reason. God is not delaying uh, his rescue and help with you without a great reason. Without a great reason. And maybe that reason has nothing to do with you. Maybe it has everything to do with someone else. Maybe it has to do with... the. Those people, maybe it has to do with someone way over here who needs to get closer so they can observe what God does in your situation. So it gives them the faith to be about what God's going to do in their situation. Who knows all the pieces? We have, a, we have served this amazing God who, who knows everything and who's got all the pieces in his head. And sometimes we just think, God, this looks so easy to me. You just smite them <laughs> and all's good. And I'm feeling, and, and, and that's, that's, you know, amen. We're done here. Uh, but remember, God knows, God's got a big 
plan going on. He's aware of everything. He's aware of everyone. And, and, and he's very concerned about what's going on. He has a why. If you've been praying and seeking him, and you've been waiting for his rescue and help, you've been waiting for him to deliver on his promises to you, he has a why. He has a why. In fact, if you're online, you can just truth type it. This is always true. God has a why for this awful, for this delay, for this, this thing that I can't see any why for. I can't even imagine a why. God has a why. I don't even know. No, God has a why. You keep praying. You keep pleading. You keep calling on God for his will to be done in your life. You keep calling on God for his rescue. You keep calling on God for his help, for his healing. You keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. In fact, in the 40 days of prayer, blog this morning, Craig Sorby, he writes about this uh, and about asking and seeking and knocking and, and how we give up, you know, after five years and we're like, well, God hasn't done it so it must not be his will. Five years is not the expiration point on deciding whether something is God's will or not. You know, the slavery in Egypt has begun on a few centuries, many generations, um, and yet it's still God's will that they are rescued and that they're saved. And so we keep praying and we keep seeking God's rescue, not just five years, not just ten years, fifteen. We just wait until God delivers on, on, his, on his word, on his promise. The, the thing I just want to encourage you is to keep praying and not to turn on God when things don't get answered soon enough. When things don't come together on our timeline. It, 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 if it doesn't get better before it actually gets a lot worse. God has a why. And that's where asking and trusting come together. That's where asking and trusting come together. What is God's why here with the ten plagues? Two whys. First of all, to show his power. To show his power. That's what it said in, in verse 16. Why? To show his power. And, and as I remind you, this is God's epic reveal moment to the nations. Where, where he's going to show the world that he is vastly more powerful than the most mighty gods of Egypt. You've got these incredible, uh, world-respected gods of Egypt and all that kind of stuff. And God's showing himself not just more powerful than the mighty gods of Egypt. More power than all the gods of Egypt combined. He is vastly more powerful than, than, all the, than all the gods of all the nations. Remember, Egypt is the power nation and its power gods are not, have nothing on the God of the Bible. And that's important for you to know. It's important for you to know that, that God is not just able to rescue you. He is able, he is, he is supremely, I don't even know how to say this, supremely able to rescue. Rescuing you, it's never an issue of power or, or, or anything like that. It's about when or it's about why and, and all of those things. Power is not an issue. His power is supreme and, and more than enough. His salvation, his rescuing, he's the best, most powerful savior and rescuer that you could ever dream of. He's the mighty one. He's, he's Yahweh the Almighty. So he gives ten plagues to make sure that we know, we know uh, that he's powerful. And also, number two, to make his name known on the whole earth, it said in verse 16. To make his name known. Sometimes when God rescues quickly, we forget quickly. But man, sometimes if you've ever been in a situation where it's been awful and it's been awful for year after year after year and you've pleaded and prayed and sought God and then finally the rescue comes, when it's a long time in coming, then, then there's a lot of praising God at the end of it. Not only that, sometimes if things go on for a long time, they become a lifelong testimony. Where you're like, wow, I was in such an awful place. And then, 
And then God did this big thing, and it took a long time, and there was a lot of pain. But forever, it has changed my life, and I am forever going to be praising God for that and telling people my story. And in those moments, God makes a greater name for himself because he's, people are remembering what he's done. And it seems like God's drawn this out so that everyone on the planet will know and hear that Yahweh is God Almighty, the Almightiest. The Almightiest. And it's clear that it's not just about the whole wor world to know, but it's that it will be remembered forever. In chapter 10, you see at the beginning of chapter 10, it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials. That might be the miraculous signs among them. Number two, and so that you may tell your son and your grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed my miraculous signs among them. And you will know that I am the I am. That I am Yahweh. It, that, that you would tell people. God wants, that, God wants people to know uh, out there that he is the all-powerful savior and rescuer. And he wants you to know. He wants your family to know. You serve the most powerful one who, who wants to be known as the savior, the God who's paying attention, the God who can help you. Not just out there, but here. And, and that's why he, Jesus has given you a job. A commission. A great commission to go, to go and, and tell people. He's given you the joy of proclaiming the greatest message about the greatest salvation, about the greatest God and his greatest work of providing the forgiveness of sins through Jesus being crucified on a Roman cross. And yet God's power supremely greater than anything such as death. And he was able to easily raise Jesus from the dead and raise everyone from the dead who believes in Jesus, motivated by the, the greatest love. We, we get this, the joy of being um, announcers, uh, people who are, are going to proclaim the, the good news that Jesus is alive. And now anyone, any background, in any situation, with any baggage, with any sin issues, with any addiction, with, with any messed upness, with any enslavement issue, anyone can be saved if they call on the name of Jesus. He can forgive them. He will forgive them if they call on him. And, and we get the joy of that great message. That is the message that God wants to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That there is salvation through his son Jesus. And, and that's great news for us. And it's great news that, uh, for us to proclaim. Don't be ashamed of the extraordinary message about our extraordinary God. God has revealed himself to you so that you can make his power and salvation known. To your families. And to the whole world. That's the challenge today. The challenge is this. I want you to have two conversations, which sounds really weak after that, that, that pleading moment. Um, 200 is fine. Anywhere between 2 and 200. Uh, have a conversation about how powerful and present God is with someone in your family. Have a, have a conversation with someone in your family. And, and then have a conversation with someone not in your family. Now, if, if you don't have, um, you know, maybe family, that could be like kids or grandkids or grandparents or parents or aunts or uncles or brothers or sisters. Uh, if you don't have anything like that, uh, then, you know, you know, family like this. You know, that, that kind of family, brothers. Uh, but anyways, so family and, and out there, two conversations at least. I, I, I want to encourage you. In fact, I'm going to pray for you and bless that. Because I want this, we want this message to go out. God wants this message to go out. 
in our time. This is one of the most strategic moments in the history of the world where the whole world has been shaken by this COVID thing. The whole world has been shaken. Ears are open. Speak the great news that the all-powerful one is paying attention. Father, I pray, uh, Father, I'm so thankful for your, your goodness, for your, your power, for your attentiveness, for, for the way that you have uh, recorded these events and um, preserved them through the ages. God, now I bless your people, and I pray that you, you would grant us courage and boldness to speak your great gospel this week in our family context, in our, in our home, in, in our, in our um, lives context. God, I pray that you would give us opportunities and that you would give us, again, the right words at the right moments. And that, God, that you would have prepared hearts to hear and receive and respond to this great news that Jesus is alive. And there's hope for everyone who would give their lives to him. You are a great God. Help us to proclaim your greatness. In Jesus' name.